Hello and welcome to a Sunday episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mail. I'm Yoshi Herman, the editor of the Mail, and I'm joined by our staff writer Jack Delhanty to talk about a story that we thought might take a few weeks and ended up taking six months. Jack, hi, how are you? And how glad are you that we finally got it published? I'm really glad that we've got this published. Satisfied as well, I think. Above all else, I'm satisfied because it feels like we got it comprehensively right across the two pieces, if you know what I mean. Like There was a lot of holes to fill uh, in the report, and I feel like we kind of hit all the marks, which was nice. Yeah, it took a while, but we got there. Let's go back to February. We were in the office. I showed you a graph. It showed how many people were living in temporary homelessness accommodation in Manchester. That's the the type of accommodation that the council puts you in effectively as an emergency option. It showed Manchester's line, the number of people in this kind of accommodation, shooting up stratospherically, while the rest of Greater Manchester's boroughs were kind of rising, but but rising much more slowly. It's quite an extraordinary view that this this sort of one line going up into the stratosphere, what the rest of them you know, staying very flat. In 2013, I think Manchester had fewer than 400 households in this kind of accommodation, uh, temporary accommodation. Now it's more than 2,500 households, which is an extraordinary rise it's one of the biggest rises across the country and that includes um, a lot of children do you remember what you first thought when we looked at that graph did it make any sense to you no really I think like we said at the time it looked as though it looked like the numbers for all of Greater Manchester were accidentally logged under just Manchester like someone had forgot that there was nine other boroughs involved it did yeah it did and I think like even though there'd been so much reporting on this in the past you know on like the hidden homeless and this big use of temporary accommodation in the city I don't think any of that I don't even think any of that reporting really illustrated the scale of it like that graph did yeah I mean I'd seen that graph in some of the reporting so I suppose we should give credit to uh, I think the Manchester Meteor had that graph and the MEN has reported but I think when I saw it I just thought there must be more going on here I think that was my sort of initial hunch was there must be something really unusual in Manchester going on. Um, and, and that's why I thought it was worth looking at. I remember thinking, this must be a data entry error. You know, is Manchester recording its homelessness numbers differently from other bits of the country? And I think once we'd realised it wasn't that, you know, we checked out with the council and, we, and we'd had a bit of digging. That's when we decided to really start investigating. I mean, you started speaking to experts. You were visiting homelessness charities for you know some on the record some off the record conversations i started asking a lot of questions of the council we found out via freedom of information requests that the council's homelessness directorate has you know is enormous 328 people budget of of 27 million it's risen a, an awful lot in the past 10 years and effectively the, the council was spending more on homelessness than it does on highways libraries galleries culture parks leisure all those things put together so it's become a massive part of the council's operation um, because of this enormous rise since 2013-14 in the number of people in temporary accommodation. You know, the other thing I think I remember we worked out or we found out via Freedom of Information requests was that the amount of time people were spending in temporary accommodation kind of made a bit of a mockery of the name, didn't it? Like, it's called temporary accommodation, but the people were spending, I think, on average, more than 440 days you know, which is 14 months. And, and and another source we looked at said that a lot of people who are there for more than three years. So that was kind of astonishing. At the same time, you started visiting temporary accommodation blocks 
places where the, these people are living. T- tell us about those. The, t- the TA blocks really are widely spread and are very varied. I think our own like use of the term TA block might be a bit of a misnomer in a way because it gives like the impression that there's all these multi-story sort of complexes housing thousands of families and they're all quite self-contained but the reality is that you know they're spread all over the city they're absolutely everywhere the houses and hotels that you walk past every day when you're walking around town I walk past them every day when I'm away well the ones in Salford I walk past every day and you know these are basically houses hotels have been reappropriated to house homeless people so like if you walk around like somewhere like Fallowfield or you take the bus up and down that sort of around that area you'll pass dozens of them and you probably would never notice that that's what you're going past and the reporting process was really quite simple I just stood outside these places that we'd identified as TA although there was that one time that we misidentified one and I knocked on the door and the guy just slammed the door in my face that was an interesting one Uh, (laughs) but uh, you know if way outside someone had come out asked them what it was like in there what the conditions were like normally is how I'd start the conversation I'd obviously introduce myself and be like this is what I'm writing about Um, how they actually came to become homeless because that became quite a cornerstone of what we were trying to work out was how how are these numbers rising? Uh, were they from Manchester? Had they come from somewhere else? Sometimes it was just like a quick five minutes. At the times we'd sit down for like 40 minutes or an hour. And we met, you know, it was me and um, Alexandria Slater, who was a massive help with this piece. And we met a real huge range of people, which I think kind of uh, subverted our expectations in a way. Yeah, I mean, you met people... I mean, the first thing to say before we get on to this is a lot of these places are pretty grim. I mean, when you guys came back to the office and reported what some of the blocks and some of the ex-hotels were like, you, you know, they sounded like very bleak places. But the other big thing that started happening was you guys were meeting people from around the country and around the world. I, I think there's one guy from Iran who was living with his wife and two kids. Um, in open, you know, they'd, um, they were in a block. I think their asylum seeker accommodation in Openshaw had, had run out. So they're, they're presented to the, to the council as homeless. In another block, you met, you guys met, I can't remember which one of you it was, two men in their forties who'd come from Cumbria, but who'd presented as homeless here. There was a worker at one of the TA blocks we visited who said, you know, we've had people from Liverpool, we've had people from London, we've had people from Scotland, we've had people from Northern Ireland. I guess our on the ground reporting started to, build an impression which wasn't necessarily you know prominent in a lot of the reporting um on on this crisis on on the housing crisis on the homelessness crisis in manchester and that was that a lot of it was seems to have been driven by factors outside manchester people coming to manchester having had issues elsewhere not necessarily an issue entirely of manchester's making Is, is that sort of how it started to feel to you yeah, 100%. And I think, like, as you mentioned before, I remember that guy, he was at one in um, Salford, it was called Lancaster House. And he said, you know, we've got people from, people have come down from Dublin and heard about Manchester and Manchester's the place that you need to go. And I think in the story, it was Richard Lees who we referenced, wasn't it? Who was talking about like people commuting from London um, and stuff like that. And I think while we did have that impression just from the on the ground stuff, that wasn't really a fully vindicated suspicion until we started doing more work with the data team that eventually got involved. Yeah, so we started working with the data team. I mean, that's a big thing to mention about this investigation. One of our members, our paying members of the mail, is a maths professor. 
at the University of Manchester, he offered us a team of his four data science students, um, graduate students, who started coming in one a week, once a week, um, spent about a day a week of their courses crunching all the data. And one by one, they effectively found that the usual explanations for the surge in Manchester homelessness didn't kind of sufficiently explain the surge because a lot of these numbers we were looking at were just quite similar to other boroughs in Greater Manchester or other councils around the country. I mean, the, the well-known factors that have been cited many times to explain this city's homelessness problem, and I'm sure they're all playing a part, but those include rising rents, lack of affordable and social homes, um, entrenched deprivation, uh, the housing benefit freeze, um, which means that obviously benefit claimants can afford fewer and fewer properties. But one by one, we sort of looked at these different figures and we didn't find that Manchester was dramatically out of kilter with other boroughs in GM or other major cities. And that was weird because the temporary accommodation number was very clearly out of kilter with all these other boroughs and other cities. So for example... Rents have risen fast in Manchester in the past decade, but they've actually risen faster in Salford. The median rent is up, um, you know, 26% in Salford compared to 23% between, you know, 2014-15 and, and 2020-21. You know, the data team found that Manchester actually has more social housing as a proportion of its overall dwellings than any of the other boroughs in GM, any other major city, you know, including Belfast, Birmingham, Bristol, Cardiff, Newcastle, you know, Sheffield. And then there's this social housing list, which we kept on talking about because it's always listed as the kind of driver of the homelessness problem, that there's such a long social housing list. We found that Manchester actually has a very typical uh, waiting list, 59 households waiting for social housing um, per thousand households, you know, per thousand resident households, compared to 74 in Bolton, 58 in Wigan, 44 in Salford. It was... I mean, they're all high. Obviously, every city would hope to have a much shorter list than that. Would 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 hope to have much more social housing capacity. But since the since you know Thatcher government in the eighties, that's not the case. Basically, what we found that was that Manchester wasn't that unusual. So that was the data, and that was really big for us because we had this data team um, who were really kind of gi- giving us clarity about the data that maybe me and you would have. Is it fair to say would have struggled to get that sort of clarity ourselves? So that was a big deal. And uh, Olivia Davidson was sort of the one who eventually ended up taking the lead on that, who's been doing some further data analysis for us in the past couple of months. I think a big moment was when one of the sources that we were speaking to for this story mentioned Tim Gray, right? We'd never heard this name. He's a highly respected expert working in homelessness. And and, and this source said there's a, there was a report by Tim Gray, you should get hold of it. And eventually we did get hold of it. I think we requested it under the Freedom of Information Act, but actually the council at that point just said, look, here it is. And it effectively confirmed some big bits of our reporting to that date, didn't it? It confirmed two two things in particular that we'd heard about. Yeah, I think the two main things were, one, while, as you said before, this wasn't really a crisis of Manchester's making, I think it would be fair in some ways to say that the perpetuation of the problem comes down to some big council failures in the actual system that's dealing with the problem isn't really built correctly to do it. So there was big mistakes when it came to, um, you know, overpaying for rooms in these sort of dispersed uh, temporary accommodations. These are the ones that are scattered across the city, but also the ones where they're using B&B accommodation to house families, which is, pro- you know, possibly breaking the law, which is something that Gray talks about. 
And it really tallied with conversations that you and I had both had with senior officers who had talked about, you know, systems that didn't really align with each other. Lots of different teams doing things that probably one or two teams could manage. And it just seemed as though it was a kind of clogged up system. Um, and then there was also this feeling of one, a bit of institutional inertia. Like we don't really want to admit that this whole time we've been doing something wrong. Like to change it would be to admit that they've been doing it wrong, which is a big problem that you get in big institutions anyway. But it was also that kind of classic Manchester, we do things differently here vibe, which was kind of like, you know, one uh, source literally said to me, we're Manchester, we know what we're doing in describing how people reacted when he um, had tried to convince them to do it a different way. And then the second thing in the Grey Report, which was really important, and I think it was something that we had slightly preempted and wondered about was that Andy Burnham's flagship program for rough sleepers, a bed every night or a Ben was kind of distorting the system. And I'll quote Gray from his report here. The system often gives greater priority for accommodation and support to this group, which is rough sleepers, than those who may have greater vulnerability and have been assessed to be in priority need. And then those people often will go on to spend considerable amounts of time in B&Bs with little or no support. So it was kind of this, I don't want to call it a loophole because that makes it sound as though it's a kind of malicious thing when in reality it's just kind of like, a poorly thought through system error almost. Yeah, or sort of an example of how good intentions can lead to, you know, unintended results because clearly no one would want a perverse system where um, a a new rough sleeper pathway which was created was actually meaning that even more vulnerable people were spending much too long in, you know, in in temporary accommodation. But that is what Gray says is probably happening um, and which seems kind of bizarre. I mean, just on 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 the use of B and B that you talked about there. You know, this kind of essentially night by night emergency accommodation. They call it B and B, but it includes hotels and B and Bs and other things. But it, the fact that it is it's night by night means you can't guarantee who else is in the corridor with the homeless person. It could be anyone. One quote we got from a, a former senior officer in the homelessness directorate at Manchester City Council. It really stood out to me, and we put it in the piece. They were talking about the routine use of B&B and they said, quote, they, the council, don't care about the welfare of homeless children. That's it. Because if they did, they wouldn't do it. You know, that, I mean, kind of an astonishing quote to have from someone who worked at a senior level in the council. In response, I think, you know, it's fair to say the council said it's trying to reduce its use of, of, of B&B accommodation. But it also said, and I quote, demand for TA is huge and it is therefore necessary to use accommodation that is available to us in the short term. This includes B&Bs. Now, Jack, this is a sort of sprawling thing. I think we published 5,000 words about it. Then we published a follow-up. We're doing another follow-up soon. There was a lot more to it than the points we've talked about. And it's sort of an ongoing thing. And I I, I do hope listeners who haven't read the piece will go and read the original story on our site. It's, it's prominent on the site on the right-hand side now. And then they'll click on the follow-up story we did a few days later, which was a members-only one. Because in that one, we posed as a property owner and um, someone who has a house. We called up a company that we know provides a lot of this TA accommodation to the council. You know, these are companies that 
you know, off, essentially offer landlords a guaranteed rent, right? £600 a month, £700 a month. And then that company leases those homes to the council. So this was a really interesting insight how the house system worked. You know, on, on the website, one of these companies, it says, no more calls from tenants. We deal with all of that for you at no extra cost. So i.e. they're going to landlords and they're kind of saying, well, we, we can give you a guaranteed rent. Anyway, we called up one of those councils and we approached another by meeting them in their office in Stockport undercover. And we said, you know, we're willing to rent your place to you. And what they said was really interesting. Those conversations, I think, were really insightful about who's making money from the city's surge in temporary accommodation. Um, the council said it's investigating the allegations that came out of that. So I'd really encourage anyone to become a mill member uh, to read that story. That's a, that's a members-only story. My final thing, unless you have anything to add, would be obviously this journalism takes an awfully long time. It's not like the only thing that we're working on, but it was a big part of our kind of lives, particularly yours and Alexandria's and Olivia and, and mine for whatever it was, five or six months. And um, yeah, the more listeners who can become mill members, the easier it'll be for us to do those stories, the more of them we can do. So, you know, I don't know, do you have any kind of reflections looking back on that whole th- on that whole thing? How do you sort of feel about where things lie now that we've done that investigation? Uh, I just second what you have to say. More people becoming members and supporting this kind of work means that, you know, obviously we can do more of it and I think you'll you know you make a good point where it's like it's not like this is the only thing we're working on and that's part of the big thing these stories at the moment anyway with the way that we're sort of structured or way that way that things are is that it's we're still doing everything else that we normally do and then we'll dedicate like a day or two to this and that allows us to kind of chip at these things over months and months and months but you can't help when you're doing that you can't help but imagine like imagine if I was going like three or four days a week on this for six months or three or four days on something else for six months like how much more you could end up drawing out of these things and how much more people could sort of come to understand about the systems that affect their lives which would be really cool yeah definitely I mean when I was away a couple of weeks ago I went to an investigative journalism conference that was held in Latvia and there were investigative journalists from around the world and a lot of people there not all of them but a lot of them are organizations where they do de- get to dedicate all of their life to this kind of, you know, investigative work. And that's not for everyone, but I think, you know, a, a really strong media company, a really like um, substantial media company, I think needs to be able to, uh, you know, dedicate more and more time to this kind of work. Um, all the other work you know, is brilliant too, and, and we enjoy it. But I think in future, we'd like to have uh, more time dedicated to this kind of digging and yeah seven pounds a month you could help out, help us do that share the podcast with a few people tell people about the mill you'll help us on the way to do that thank you so much for listening to this podcast please do share it uh, please do give us a rating if you can and we will be back in your inboxes on thursday <laughs>